A rain like that, soft and heavy, bouncing off of leaves the size of umbrellas, can only fall just that way in Bali. Will Goldfarb recorded that sound in Ubud in the island center at nighttime a few days ago, a world away from me and my apartment in New York City. I know I don't often cop to it much, but this is a travel podcast, and this week we are going to travel far, far away to Bali, Indonesia. And we'll do it through the perspectives of three people, a traveler, an eater, and a legendary pastry chef. Along the way, of course, we'll talk a bit about race and migration and surviving cancer because life, even in Bali, isn't all suckling pig and ginger flower daluman. Let's start with Travis Levius, a luxury travel writer who has covered Bali for Condé Nast Traveler and other publications. This is Nathan Thornburg, and from Roads and Kingdoms, you are listening to The Trip, The World on Lockdown. Now here's Travis. How how did the trip to Bali come about? The trip to Bali came about because I was on a really cool, fancy travel writing assignment. Um, All right. To, Those sound nice. Yeah, it was pretty cool. It was a, um, a new Indonesian yacht that came out and they were sailing around the Komodo Islands. So I got to do that for about a week. And I told the, you know, the publicist that arranged the trip that I wanted to, of course, being on the, all the way on the side of the world from London, wanted to just stick around and have my own personal travel. So I just stayed in um, Bali um, for an additional three weeks on my own. Took the opportunity to also do travel writing assignments while I was there as well. So I got to do a bit of work and play well as well and explore. So that is the dream. Put those both in a blender and uh, <laughs> you have yourself a... A good couple weeks, huh? Yeah, absolutely. What What did you have in your mind's eye about Bali as a as a travel writer uh, before you showed up there? I'd say I assumed Bali was just going to be the, a place of of peace, of this palpable spiritual vortex, like maybe a, a an um, an Asian version of Sedona. Where you know people feel the <laughs> was, you know the energy absorbed and, and whatnot. Just, <laughs> I was just thinking of Sedona, crystals and uh, and vibrations and whatnot. Yeah, uh, right. Okay, <laughs> that's what I gathered from everyone that that was talking about Bali before I arrived. Right. I mean, and it's not you know it's an interesting thing about the island because it is sort of defined by its religion, right? It's sort of set aside from the rest of Indonesia by being a Hindu island in a, in a Muslim country. So that spirituality is, is I mean, you're, you're, you're onto something there, I guess. It, it, it just, even from the way that it's set up, the, the profile that it has in its own country, it's kind of defined by its, uh, its places of worship and certainly by the demographics of its religion. Yes. Um, all right, so, so you're looking for a Southeast Asia Sedona uh, and that sort of that peaceful easy feeling what what uh how did that match up once you started to dig into the island yourself uh, i would say that because of the order of in the in which i started my itinerary i was in a i guess a rude awakening you know based on what i thought it would look like so i started my trip in the the beach towns the the southwestern beach towns the popular changu and and um, near Uluwatu, and I mean, and you flew in, right? This is this is. Yeah, I flew into the international the, airport. Mm-hmm. 
to Denpasar, which is in that neighborhood. Right. I mean, it kind of reminds me of, of like going into New Jersey somehow. Like I, I feel like 30% of why New Jersey has a bad rap is because most people get into it from that northern industrial Sopranos opening credit <laughs> land. Yes. Right? And and first impressions matter. And, and you come into this and you're like, fuck this state. Like, right. It's it just, just a bunch of factories and places to dump bodies. Exactly. I kind of had that sort of um, jarring, uh, you know, um, emotion when I, when I got there just because it just seemed, in, in that specific area, just so busy, so touristy. Um, I didn't, within the first few days, really feel like I could get into the skin of Bali because it felt like other international folks have kind of staked claim in so many areas. And so I'm like, well, where is this magic? I would say that then going to spots in Ubud and going on the you know less trodden eastern side of the island that's where I found the magic. But I wish I had started my journey there in those places first before getting to the, the hubbub of um, the, the beach towns of Bali. Now, so answer me this in a hypothetical sense. Would you rather have the disappointment up front or you want to delay that to the very end of a trip? Mm, I'll tell you what. I, I would I start with the, with the, the more... Um, the go to the Bali that I wanted, that I thought was there, I would go to those p- places first and then say, okay, let's just, now we can just party now that I've got my, you know, my <laughs> spiritual fix. <laughs> so you've got to earn that. You've got to earn that right to go and, uh, and, and hit the beach side bar. Right. <laughs> earn it with a little, little uh, work on yourself, I guess. Um, exactly. Okay, well, let's talk about that area. So you were talking about the eastern Eastern Bali is the, I think, the Bali that people fell in love with um, 15 years ago. And so it's full of um, working temples and um, many times untouched um, coast, coastline. And it just feels free and pristine and organic in a place where you just feel like you can exhale. You, You can just exhale and and just soak in, you know, the beauty of nature and the beauty of um, a culture that's still well-preserved. Of of all the places, what was the one spot on the east side that kind of, um, that kind of epitomizes that, that feeling that it gave you? Uh, I mean, it's, it's, even though this is a, quite a, a tourist destination now, um, it was so beautiful getting to see Malta Gung from Mount um, Leponyang on the temple of the of Temple Leponyang and um, seeing it framed with the Hindu gates. Have you seen have you seen that um, that site where um, there's like a, a gate? It's like two, you know, symmetrical gates on top of a hill and it frames Mount Agung perfectly in the center. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes, I do. Yeah. Okay. I haven't been there personally, but I imagine the effect is just 10x whatever you would see from photos or something. Yes, yes. Um that was that was just just completely alluring and just a great way for at one time, you know, simultaneously to see 
um, both the natural splendor of Bali, but also um, a, a remnant of their culture and, and one full sweep. But let me, let me ask you about that. I mean, obviously, you know, you specialize and are, are building a career around the idea, not just of travel, but at times high-end travel, right? Like a yacht that'll take you around the Komodo Islands. It's, it's not a bad life, but it's not something that I think is, is filled with black voices, not that section of travel. How do you see yourself in relationship, particularly to luxury travel? Mm, I, I think I joined, I think I, I chose really getting into luxury travel because you didn't see a lot of visibility of people that look like me in it. I would watch, there's a, you know, there's a channel with in, in certain um, places in the States called a wealth of entertainment. And I would see, you know, these travel hosts explore the Maldives and um, go on these amazing trips around the world and, you know, they didn't look like me, but I'm like, well, why can't I do something like that? Why can't I experience those things? And and if I were to get in that position, could I then inspire other people that might have not thought that was possible to maybe get into the industry as well or just be inspired to see that it's possible for them? So I, mm. though I don't make a lot of... Um, I don't make a lot of declarations about me being a black luxury travel journalist. I do hope that my visibility does say some does say something and and um, inspire other people to um, you know see that representation is important and and inspire other people of color to know that they are worthy of being in these spaces, whereas you have men I've seen that representation before. So I think there's a lot of um, you know, mental war going on sometimes where it's like, you know, do I belong or um, how would they see me? Like when I go to a five star resort, um, do they think I'm one of the workers? Uh, would I be looked down upon like I don't belong there? So sometimes I grapple with that. But I think I just have to stay in my ground that like, no, I am worthy of being in these places and um, just stake my claim around the world. And so there's no limits to me. And I just hope that when people see that, that they know that they don't have limits to their own as well. So just by being there, you're creating the space then that that more and more people could could come and occupy. Absolutely. I and I did. I I saw this video. I think it was from Chicago. I don't know if it was like a Ritz or a W, or you know, where you're sort of, uh, you know, explaining that this was a dream that you had had for yourself to be able to come to uh, to these places. Um. And, and kind of experience it, right? Exactly. Yeah, I thought I would have to win the lottery to do so, but life had a trick up its sleeve, clearly. Dewey Satrio is an old friend of Roads and Kingdoms, a legendary eater from the island archipelago. He grew up in Jakarta visiting Bali frequently, and though he and his wife now live in Stockholm, he was all too happy for a bit of reminiscing about the island of his youth. So I actually grew up in uh, Jakarta, Indonesia, actually. Um, I was born and raised there, although when I was two years old, um, my family moved to Los Angeles, California for three years as my dad was working there and um, my mom pursued her master's degree at um, USC. And so I sort of grew up 
mix with um, American culture and also um, Indonesian culture as well. Along the way, I guess uh, Bali is sort of like uh, an escape place for people who live in the capital, right? And so um, when I was little and when I was um, heading into high school, I guess we sort of uh, visit the island more and more and sort of, you know, fell in love with the island more and more. And so I guess um, it just came naturally, I guess. I've taken that plane from Jakarta to Denpasar that is just absolutely packed with people, yeah. <laughs> Indonesians going yeah. uh, to, to get something. What's what's the feeling like? What are they looking for in getting out of Bali that, that you can't get uh, in, in Java or yeah. or particularly in the big cities? Well, I, I can't say getting away from the traffic because I think the traffic is getting pretty bad in Denpasar and Bali as well. <laughs> but I think it's just the environment, you know, it's... Uh, it's it's the beach it's the sand it's the it's the sound of the waves it's the i feel the people is different as well because you know the island is so accustomed to tourism and foreigners and hospitality so you feel like you're sort of a tourist as well i guess even though you're coming from the same country but the people there sort of um they know how to treat you better i guess in a way if you can say that no offense to the people in jakarta but I think it's so true because they live and die for tourism, you know, for hospitality. That's sort of their their strength. And um, it's it's such a nice escape and such a nice feeling to feel that even though it's, you know, in the same country, but it's still a two hour plane ride from Jakarta. It, it always, you know, refreshes your energy and, you know, gives some more you know, excitement, even though it's only for a weekend. So it's always been a great place for Jakartans to have a momentary escape from. Jakarta is is an incredible city. Uh, the 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 stress levels yeah, are absolutely uh, are amazing. I think uh, across across the spectrum. I spent a month there, and I was in mm-hmm. Dalam, which is like the uh-huh. you know the leafy suburbs of Jakarta. And yeah. I, I I still was like, damn, this city is real. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it it it's just incessant. It, it will not stop. You know, it's uh, it's it can be tough, but um, there's a lot to like as well if you find you know amongst all of the small alleyways and and uh, amongst all the crowd you can find some stuff to enjoy there as well when you think about bali and and where to eat do you have a a specific spot or two that that kind of stand out for you of course i have a couple um one of my favorites uh, you know babi guling which is like the suckling pig i think um tony bourdain ate at a couple of spots when he was there in Bali. Um, it's basically like a whole baby pig roast uh, the whole morning, um, seasoned with a lot of coconut oil and stuffed with a lot of spices. Um, one of my favorites, it's uh, Babiguling Pat Dobil, which is in close to Nusa Dua. Um, I miss that place because it's, it, that's always the first place that I go to whenever I visit Bali because um, it's not too far from the airport and it's, if you go there in the morning, everything's still fresh, um, especially the skin. That's the best part. The the cracklings when it's still in the morning, you still they still have a lot of them in supply, and it's still crispy. Um, sometimes when it's in the afternoon, it gets a bit soggy, but you know it's still super lovely. That's uh, a 
that is an underrated quality of a, of any recommendation too is having it be close to the airport so it's like that first thing you can do so you can just dive right into the thing that you love about a place yeah, i absolutely so if that's, agree if that's your first meal coming off the planet then pasar you are doing pretty well yeah i agree i think uh a lot of restaurants might want to try to exploit that strategy because <laughs> <laughs> that let... no i agree when you drop off the airplane the first thing you wanted to do is maybe just look for a really damn tasty local food you know and just go for it nowadays i like to spend a lot of time in ubud which is like in the mountainous area where it's like the cultural and like the nature hub of bali even though it's starting to get a bit too crowded now but there's a couple of restaurants there which I, which I really love. Um, one of them is Locavor. I think you've heard of them. Uh, they're doing pretty yep. well right now in the Asian um, restaurant scene. I think they've been in the Asia's 50 best restaurant lists in, for the past four or five years. I, I, I can't remember, but um, they do really, really good um, Indonesian modern Indonesian cuisine using mostly Indonesian um, or even local products um, from the island and from their suppliers of vegetables and also farmers. Um, I think they do stuff really, really well. They have their own identity and they're doing a lot of cool stuff like um, ferment fermentation, making their own tempeh and stuff like that. So it's it's a super cool spot that I always visit whenever I visit the island. Um, another place that I really like is uh, Room for Dessert, actually. It's... Uh, it's a tasting dessert tasting menu spot in Ubud as well. It's run yeah. by Will Goldfarb, which is a super lovely guy. He's actually from New York as well, um, originally. Uh, well, the he... reason why I'm so sleepy this morning is I was talking to Will at midnight my time, which is <laughs> <laughs> the only way to talk to someone in Bali, unfortunately, if you're in New York. So, yeah. Um, yeah. That's uh that's good to hear. I'm 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 glad that I know you guys are uh are are connected, but I'm I'm glad to to hear the room for desserts doing it for you. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think it's uh it's a lovely spot, you know. He 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 has his own thing going on. He just renovated his his spot uh, and I think it's more lovely than ever. Um one of the things that I love about Will and his place is how he kept on nurturing the the local people, you know. Um, I mean, of course, you know, McDonald's can do that as well, hiring local people. But then you know, what he does, he goes more than that. He he trains them, he teaches them, and then sometimes he will send these local um, talents to some of his, you know, chef friends all over the world, in, in Australia, uh, in Japan, and get more knowledge and absorb them and come back to Room for Desserts, you know, refresh and with a brand new uh skill and and talent and i think what he's doing for the community is amazing so really huge respect to that all right so you're you're now in lockdown is your your family and everybody back in indonesia okay everybody's uh kind of doing their thing yeah luckily i think um they're one of the obedient ones <laughs> if you see pictures <laughs> in you know in indonesia you partly because there's no you know strict governmental um rule it's uh it's a bit of uh it's it's not too fun to see some of the pictures and videos that's happening in in jakarta at least last month um uh, but no luckily my friends and family they're all doing really well and staying at home as well 
that's right. Jakardens are kind of out and just living their lives like there wasn't a pandemic on. Yeah, but um, I don't know. That's a bit of a false sense of security. I think um, the the testings aren't that large, as far as I know. So yeah. we don't really get like accurate numbers. And it was also the peak was during the Ramadan month, and at the end of Ramadan month, usually people will find time. Um, in normal years, non-COVID years, you know, people will go back to their hometowns um, all across Indonesia. So, you know, um, train stations, bus stations, airports are usually jam-packed. And even though, like, the government sort of gave um, recommendations, not strict rules, but just recommendations to not travel outside of um, Jakarta, on the day of uh, the last week of Ramadan, you know, airport was like super packed people lined up and you know even though they know the risk or maybe they don't know the risk but they still went their way and you know do whatever they can to go out of the city yeah i mean it's the same here our our traditions uh really die hard (laughs) people people want their summer damn it uh exactly go and all right. Well, I'm 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 glad you guys are safe. It's good to good to hear you and and good to see that you are uh, so well landed in Stockholm. Thank you, Dewey. I I really appreciate uh, talking to you. No, thank you, Nathan, for having me. It's been a pleasure. I wasn't fishing for compliments about Chef Will Goldfarb from Dewey, but was not surprised to hear them either. You can watch Chef's Table on Netflix for a full symphonic look at Will's culinary appeal, but suffice to say that he has done the very improbable thing of making the same restaurant a hit twice, seven years and 10,000 miles apart, first in Manhattan and then in Bali. He and I had been texting about a common anniversary we have, his 11-year mark of being cancer-free and my five-year mark of being the same. So fair warning, that does come up a bit later in this chat of ours. And now, here's Will. So, tell me where you are this fine Saturday afternoon. Um, where are we? I'm, in, I'm here in Ubud, in Bali, uh, upstairs in our new office at Room for Dessert, part of our uh, perfectly timed expansion for 2020. <laughs> you really, uh, you doubled that shit down right in time. Uh, huh? Actually, you know, we're more of a triple down kind of place. We, we doubled down... 2018 we had a big year and so we literally bet the house on 2019 um and then for 2020 was more of like a modest maybe like 3.1 but we built a savory kitchen so we could do more savory food and then we moved uh our office which used to be my bedroom uh upstairs so that we could build a savory kitchen so it's been a pretty exciting uh it's been a pretty exciting to be honest we're coming up on our sixth anniversary on june 24th which is also my birthday. So I get 45 and the, the restaurant gets six. Um, and it's been pretty... Hey, happy hell birthday. Of, yeah, thank you. Hell of a ride. <laughs> yeah, well, I can I can tell you're kind of a, a let it ride dude. <laughs> you're like, <laughs> hey, we got a little money. Let's let's put it put it back on black and see what happens. So what is what is the vibe in, in Ubud right now? I mean, how how's everybody feeling? How's the town doing? Um, I mean, honestly, Ubud is really, really quiet, uh, crickets even, and it's just opening up a little bit now. Uh, we've been under a really strict curfew uh, of 8 p.m. for a few months. Uh, all operations ceased uh, from our side the last week of March. 
which was a pretty crazy week. And we started doing our kind of anyway. Well, I'll I'll, I'll fill you in on what we're up to. But Ubud as a whole is really, it's pretty dead to be honest. It's pretty ghost town. Uh, the only part of Bali right now that's seeing uh, any significant uh, action is in Changu. Uh, we've been we've been working closely with the neighborhood associations, with the police, you know, t- chatting with the royal family and seeing sort of what are the plans here. But right now, most of the hotels are closed and most of the expats have left and there are just a lot of hungry people so that's really what we've been focusing on on our day-to-day is just making sure you know making sure that we get people fed like we could have grounded out for a few more weeks and frankly we probably could have grounded out most of the summer uh, but we just shut it down and we said you know what we'll start cooking for our staff we have uh, 40 staff all of whom we've kept on and we started cooking. So we do about 150 meals for a day for our staff. And we started cooking for all of the, you know, unemployed hospitality workers around Ubud who got dumped by their employers pretty, pretty immediately, uh, which was pretty shameful. Yeah. Tell me, tell me about that. Cause it's been, you know, so different in every part of the, the world and even in the country, but there is something distinctly shameful about a a server going hungry, you know, these people who are in the business of feeding, right? The whole thing is, again, I I try to stay on the positive side and not be critical of others or unnecessarily political. I would just say, like, from our side, um, you know, the solution to a public health crisis is not create more poor, hungry people. (laughs) It's like, you know, you're you're just not going to solve that problem by firing a lot of young people, making them hungry. And if you want to be a good neighbor or citizen or community person or whatever that you want to call it, like you can't you can't take money when things are good and then dump your staff when things are bad. Like that just doesn't that's just not right. It's just bad manners, like whatever you want to talk about the business model. And I happen to think it's a terrible uh, mid and long term business model, even though I understand its desirability for short term survival. But it's totally shameful. I mean, you have people that are you have food that's going to waste because the farms can't get vegetables picked. And that means you're going to put generations of farmers out of business. You have people who are young who are counting on you to to make a living. But let's say let's even remove it one step from make a living. Just have shelter and food. Right. Like we you know, the it's we're not in a country where, you know, it's not. You're not getting a thousand dollars a week on unemployment or, you know, it's not Denmark. It's not even New York. It's more like I think government assistance in Indonesia was like forty dollars a month, something like that, or twenty six dollars a month. And and Hot damn. And that's if you could get it. I mean, you know, that represents 10 percent of, of per capita income here. You know, so if your average wage is two hundred sixty dollars a month, I mean, but again, the idea that you can say to someone, you know what, like. I'd rather save my business and fuck everybody who works for two, you know, for like these like small amounts of money. And like, if my business can't support those people, then I shouldn't have a business. Like it's very, yeah. but it's very frustrating because all of the big businesses here, especially the ones who, if we're honest, could afford to weather the storm, could afford to take care of their staffs. They dumped like thousands of people the same day. The first sign of a downturn, everyone got dumped. And I can assure you, none of those people were getting stock options and bonuses when they were making millions, you know. So it's really yeah. disgraceful. It's it's really disgraceful, honestly. It's it's just this it's is disgraceful. how uh, 
this is how capitalism uh, <laughs> digs its own grave, right? It's well, like these, right. Uh, what is it, Henry? Even Henry Ford, who's not necessarily the most desirable human in a variety of ways. Uh, I think the quote was right. Like, how can I have a car company if my workers can't afford to buy my cars? I mean, that yeah. like that principle to me does actually still mean something. Um, and I, I've heard a lot of people. We had we had another friend of ours who has a cucumber farm, and he, everyone's been trying to get him to sort of automate it, you know, for all the watering and everything for years because it's so much more efficient and you can, you know, water so many more cucumbers and blah, you can cut your labor costs. And, and his response was very simply like, yeah, and then I and then I have a successful cucumber farm in a poor village <laughs> where nobody has a job and nobody has any money. Like, it's only efficient if you consider only one part of the equation. How did you move from the kind of the kind of cooking you had done before to cooking the uh, for the unemployed and and the uh, the undernourished in in your community well i mean for us in i in some ways it's really coming full circle when we opened here we were i mean i, I wouldn't say we were undercapitalized we, we were uncapitalized so so we didn't have we didn't really have anything uh we did everything manually and we we always did a huge staff meal uh, and that was always really really critical to, to, to room for dessert and, and frankly all of the great restaurants that I've worked at one of the cornerstones of that was having a great staff meal so so the idea mm -hmm. of cooking for our staff has been part of our our ethos since since before we even opened you know for the six months before the restaurant opened we were cooking for everybody working on the restaurant every day we had chefs come in just to work on the staff meal menu and when we opened and we didn't have any savory options and uh, or customers frankly uh, we didn't have any sales <laughs> we we would always try to get people to stick around you know so if you're going to have a drink and that could be three drinks and that could help me make payroll then you know we'll, we want you know it's like vegas we want to keep you at the table so without being super cynical so we would just give people like let people just have their dinner with us you know we would just share our staff meal with our customers so if they were hungry or they didn't have to drive home drunk or whatever it was just like simple generosity uh, and that started working really well to the point where we had to start selling it because people were asking for it so we would do like a full you know our full staff meal which is like a balinese nasi champur rice and sort of five things around it uh and sell it for i don't know two bucks or three bucks you know instead of a, a buck or whatever you get on the street but we took a lot of pride in it and over the six years we've really worked and now that our team is you know 40 instead of six you know our staff meals are a pretty big operation because we cook two meals a day for all of our staff uh, and right. now and, and we also now cook for them when they're for their days off so so for us to transition from pure staff meal to giving food away just seemed uh like pretty natural extension uh we it just we didn't really have any consideration other than that uh, and we also looked at it as well you know we're not we can put the same attention we can support one great farm we can keep our kids excited about food and we can just start cooking lots of food. Like, I don't know, I, I, I'm kind of old fashioned that way. Like if there's trouble, you cook your way through it. You know, you, you don't you don't run away. So so from our side, it was pretty, I don't want to say effortless because it was a huge undertaking. And like right now we do almost 3000 meals a month, which again is not that many by some standards, but but for our little place, considering we have essentially zero revenue, it's, it's a lot. Um, and we're looking to scale that up. 
really because the need goes beyond even uh, even those three thousand meals. Oh man, I mean that doesn't even scratch the surface. We if we were do- we could be doing three thousand meals a day right now. So wow. But but for us to get to that, we need to scale. I don't know that our infrastructure could support that unless we decided to not open again and just keep it a soup kitchen. Uh, but I'm not sure we could subsidize it then. Has the slowdown caused you to see your your town any differently? Does uh, or see your neighbors? I don't know. Is there any is there yeah, any yeah. sort of like quality perspective? <laughs> I mean, the, look, the Balinese are pretty cool, and they're they're looking. They look at things over centuries and millennia, not over seasons. Um, I think, I think that you definitely see people's colors when the chips are down. Uh, but I would say our clients have been really great. The ones that have here have shown us a lot of love. You know, we have people coming in and buying everything. I mean, from our market. I mean, you can literally come in and it's like make an offer. You know, you want to take the plates home. You want to take the wine list home. Like you can take the furniture home. Uh, and our, our clients, have, our, our guests have been really, really great. And we have great loyalty uh, and we have great appreciation. Uh, and, and, and when you walk outside, I mean, it's pretty nice to be in like this beautiful tropical paradise with no traffic and no pollution. It's fantastic. Um, yeah. It's not particularly sustainable, but, but neither was, you know, 20 million tourists and, and overcrowded streets and crazy pollution and destroy, you know, like, I'm not sure the previous system was hyper sustainable. So. Right. In different I, ways, but yeah. Yeah. I'm just hoping that people take a moment and say, you know what, maybe it wasn't so bad. You know, maybe we can focus on quality, not quantity. Uh, maybe it's important for us to think locally, not globally all the time. Uh, and to take care of, again, like from take care of the people that are right around us. And that's a very Balinese approach, which is right. Your neighborhood, your Banjar, that's the people you need to take care of. And then the next neighborhood, the next Banjar, that's that's they need to take care of them. <laughs> you know, like like that's those right. are two people. They're 100 meters down the street. And it's like those are different universes. Yeah. Um, so so I don't at, they're good at staying small. They're great, but and and they're and they're and everybody lives, you know, and the and the dwelling style is compound, multi generational, you know, everything's pooled and centered around the 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 temples. Like it's a, you know, for all the people that have tried to civilize that way of life out of existence, it looks pretty resilient versus some other ones right now. <laughs> Amen. Tell me about Ubud. How how did you find that place? How'd you end up there? What was that first encounter? Um, I mean, my wife, like most most times that I've made a decision that's not horrible has has come from my wife, uh, even even the ones that appear to be me being super creative. I'm usually just the light switch guy and she's the real brains behind the operation. But uh, we she, she we were looking for schools for our daughter. Uh, this is now 2004. 2005 like you know around then so when our daughter was born we were looking for schools we found a great preschool on the upper east side we moved to queens and i was working in new york at room for dessert and it was like you know this is our best life and it's still kind of not enough (laughs) you know like room for desserts (laughs) room room for desserts going great you know my wife's on the on the 545 you know f train to the east 90s you know from roosevelt and it's like this is, you know, and that's what success looked like. Uh, and then, and then when we lost the place, it was like, come on, this is just, you know, there's literally no point in, in, in putting through, putting up with this. So we started looking and my wife had read about, I think there was a magazine at the time called Babel, like a kid's magazine that was coming out. 
and she found some article about this new bamboo school they were building in Bali, which was the green school. And we said, you know, let's let's uh, let's go check it out. You know, like it's 2000. It's 2008. We lost, you know, we lost the restaurant last year. It's not coming back right now. So why don't we just get the hell out of here and check out Bali? Uh, so we flew over 2008 uh, and visited the school, which at the time was uh, basically just dirt. I mean, it was not even in construction phase. And we were like, this is perfect. <laughs> Let's go here. So we decided to move here 2008 uh, in October and we had subletted our house and we, I don't know, I went to, you know, Zach Palaccio, uh, he did, he used to, he think he still does a big thing called Fatty Fest. We went up uh-huh. for, for the weekend and kind of camped out and my legs started bothering me and I ended up and I just sort of had made a deal with my wife that if like whatever I appeared to be harmless had, had started bothering me that I would go get it checked out. And so I was go. I went to the hospital. I think if I can remember right, we were getting our tennis rackets restrung. We didn't look very appropriate in the emergency room. Uh, and 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 the, find firm uh, firm tension on your strings. Huh? That's exactly right. No, we were ready to go. We were we were court ready, um, but we weren't. Uh, and then so and my I went to like a sports doctor I used to go see when I was in high school, and he was like you need to go get that checked out like immediately. Uh, so I went to, he sent me over to like a, I think, where did I go? I went to a, like some diagnostic place to get a, I forget what the really loud one is called MRI. Yeah. I came back to him the next day and he's like, you need to go immediately to the hospital, like right now and get a, what is it? Whatever. A, I forget which one is a biopsy or an autopsy, but the not fatal. One. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> one yeah. One before the other now. Uh, and <laughs> so it's turned. Yeah. He sent me to Sloan, Sloan catering. And, uh, I was, and they were, and they were like, um, yeah, like you have an enormous, you have a huge tumor, you know, like you can't, you know, you can't, and I was like, so do I, you know, do I, can I still make my flight on Saturday or whatever? I think it was like, it was Tuesday, I think. And we were supposed to move to Bali on Saturday. Uh, and it was pretty wild. Uh, and so that, I mean, we'd already moved out. So we basically just pretended that we left and we just spent the year. You know, I haven't really talked about it too much. I talked about it a little bit a couple of years ago, and I tend to be pretty, pretty private about it. Uh, but it, but it is pretty integral to like how we ended up here. Uh, so, I, you know, so you just hung out and dealt with that shit like kind of yeah. quietly, stateside. Exactly. No, I. <laughs> and I moved everybody in was with, like, "Oh, they must yeah. be having such a nice time yeah. in Bali." <laughs> yeah. Well, every, you know, and also the perception was that I bailed on New York, which I guess was true, but I was also, you know, doing radiation every day and, <laughs> and surgery and, yeah. and trying to, uh, trying to uh, hide out with my family, keep everybody afloat. You know, that experience gave me a lot of perspective on what was important and, and also not feeling sorry for myself. It was great to be in a, great to be in a um, hospital with a bunch of kids because it's very easy, it's very hard to feel sorry for yourself. Uh, God, you know, I had the same fucking experience because I also, yeah. you know, went through my cancer treatment at Sloan Kettering and I felt like, this sounds very, you know, very dark, but I felt like they just placed a fucking child. It was always like one, you yeah. know, <laughs> like in the waiting room every time I went in. And it was just like, and I, I was not the only person having that, you know, response. I guess you were too. I was like just looking at that kid and I'm like 
what problems do I have? <laughs> no, no, I've <laughs> you know? had a great life. I mean, I, I was like, and well, the funny thing is not to, you know, talk, talk out of school about Sloan, but <clears throat> they, they totally refused to treat me after di- diagnosing me. So I had without, uh, they wouldn't accept my insurance. They told me to put uh, down yeah. a, like, they told me to put down like a half a million dollar retainer or something. Uh, so, yeah. so I ended up, I ended up, uh, a, right on the park at, um, Mount Sinai. We found an amazing surgeon okay. there. Um, and yeah, actually yeah. the, the radiation place in the basement is in the children's wing. So like every walk in, every door in was like every elevator ride was just being surrounded by kids. And you're like full of sick kids. Yeah. Well, and like, you're like, okay, I'm 33. Like I I have a great life. I have a beautiful wife. I have a beautiful baby. I had a great restaurant, you know, like I've had like, not saying I want to go out at 33, but you know, like, like these guys grew up pushing their carts around the hallways. Like this is a, this is a fucking nightmare. Like whatever, whatever I'm dealing with is not similar to what they're dealing with. I do, um, I do remember. I, yeah, Sloan Kettering <laughs> also cut me off uh, at some point. But they still send me fundraising letters, which is yeah. charming. It's <laughs> they always appropriate. Yeah. To their foundation. Yeah. But yeah. listen, well, I mean, I I guess that it just feels like that lesson is like you were saying that uh, to take something that is so grim, really, and then use it as a catapult to throw you into some wild and unknown and and ultimately just kind of beautiful things like that that feels like a tonic for for right now yeah i feel really good i don't know i i feel like i mean i i don't know i don't it's not the kind of thing i recommend for others but it certainly was helpful (laughs) was helpful and again like it's it's much and i don't talk about it very often like maybe almost never or maybe twice in 10 years but counting counting this conversation uh but it seemed appropriate based on our previous exchange yeah yeah, I've walked that path. Yeah, I mean it's just what it is. I don't uh, like I said I don't recommend it, but 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 I'll tell you it definitely helped me refocus on on finally doing this place, you know, when it had seemed like there was just it was just not going to happen. I just think in a time of massive crisis and calamity, we don't have to wish cancer on anybody cuz everybody's no, no, no. getting a little a little taste of just like the upset and upheaval and uncertainty and uh, there's there's something to something to come out of this who the fuck knows what it is no no i was just gonna say you're seeing this now i mean if you're a person of color right now you're 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 feeling like you're you know maybe have a moment to to get some of that bag you know to to get a little redemption right now um i think it's pretty um I think there are a lot of people that have been 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 had a lot of challenges, um, and it would be really nice if this was a time where people could sort of sh- sh- shrug those off in a really pr- positive way. Um, that would be really nice. Yeah, fix some shit. All right. Well, let's cook uh, cook our way through it, huh? <laughs> awesome. <laughs> As you said. Well, Will, I appreciate it, man. It's so good to talk to you and. Uh, I'm, uh, there's no other man that I would rather be sitting here in my closet at midnight. Uh, <laughs> Likewise, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. The Trip from Roads and Kingdoms is hosted by me, Nathan Thornburg. Theme music by Dan the Automator. Show artwork by Adele Rodriguez. Executive producers are me and Matt Goulding, also of Roads and Kingdoms. As a reminder, these episodes are now free and available on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. We will be back next week. 
and we'll meet you there. <laughs>